Now, while uh, I've been doing the, the CMTC course, I've been learning quite a lot of long words uh, while I've been doing it. I always find that there's always a simple way to say things, aren't there? There are long ways to say things. And uh, it can be a bit like being a mechanic, can't you? You know there's bits of a car and you sort of know what the name is roughly. You know that's the engine and those are the wheels. But, you know, you don't exactly know how it all fits together. Well, theology is a bit like that uh, with those different parts of an engine and different parts of a car. You've got all sorts of bits that sort of fit together, like Christology, that's talking about Christ, Ecclesiology, talking about the church, Missiology, talking about mission, Eschatology, one of my favourite words, uh, talking about things of the end. And a bit like with an engine, if you start to tinker with one, you might suddenly find that other bits get messed up as well. Uh, I know that uh, I I didn't realise with my car, I used to have a Ford Fiesta, and uh, I didn't realise really that putting in the water... Uh, into the uh, into the heater, uh, that affected how your engine ran. Uh, it just never occurred to me. It's like, oh, it's not very important. You know, it's like the water that you squirt out of your uh, window, but it made a big difference when it started smoking uh, and uh, big problems. And it's the same as with theology, isn't it? If you tinker a little bit with Christ's divinity, uh, you end up with a cross becoming something where a victim is suffering. God is being really mean. Uh, if you tinker with heaven, then you end up with weird things like purgatory, If you tinker with missiology, you end up with things like just being sat around and not really doing much. But with all these different groups, all these different parts of theology, sometimes there can be some nice surprises. There can be connections between parts of the engine that you never knew were there, you'd never spotted before. And this evening we're going to look at one that I think I've missed for a long time. And that's the connection between resurrection uh, and mission. We're going to look at the, uh, the risen Lord, but we're going to look at what he does, the way that he rises and what he tells them. Because on one hand, you wouldn't put the resurrection and mission together, would you? Yet here they are together at the end of Matthew's Gospel. So we're going to look at those bits separately and see how they fit together. So our first saying this evening is the resurrection. Resurrection verses 1 to 10. The story's told now of uh, the disciples uh, hearing the Gospel. We hear about these women. We heard a little bit about it this morning. We get Mary and Mary Madeline and the other Mary. Wouldn't you love to be the other Mary? <laughs> Which one? The other one. Uh, they, they're going to the tomb. Now the other Gospels tell us that's to anoint the body. Matthew just leaves that they're going out to the tomb to see. And then like this morning, there's an earthquake. And the reason is given to us this time, so we don't need to guess at why it's there. An angel of the Lord has, has descended uh, onto the earth. Now, if you're the sort of, I don't think there are anybody here, but the sort, of, the sort of people who come at just Christmas and Easter, you might be tempted to think that the angel of the Lord is all the way through Matthew's gospel, all the way through the gospels. But actually, he's not appeared since chapter two. Uh, this is really right, right at the beginning and right at the end of Matthew's gospel uh, that we get the angel of the Lord. So he sort of comes on huge occasions, really. That's the angel of the Lord. And he comes down, he rolls the stone back, and then he has a sit down on top of the stone. And interestingly, Matthew tells us what he looks like. Uh, Do you see that there in verse 3? His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Now what we've got there is some imagery from Daniel 7, uh, which uh, it was such a key chapter, if you remember, in the run-up. Jesus said that he was the the son of man uh, from Daniel 7. Well, this is the the, the picture of the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7, the one who had clothes uh, as white as snow. And then the face like lightning, well, that's from Daniel 10. That's Daniel's vision of a man. And again, sort of picturing God. So what it's really showing us here is the angel of the Lord appears. This is God appearing on the scene. 
This is the way it happens in the Old Testament. As the angel of the Lord comes, people say that they've met the Lord. They've met God. So God shows up uh, in the scene, if you like, to tell them what has happened. This is a, a theophany. That's not a long word for you. But it's God appearing to them. And as with other times when God appears in the Bible, the people who see it are mortified. Quite literally, they're like dead people. That's what that, that word mortified in a way means. They, they become as like dead as they face uh, the angel of the Lord. But the angel then speaks to the women, doesn't he? And gives the most repeated command in the whole of scripture. Now you might be tempted to think, oh, you know, oh yes, it's uh, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, something like that. But actually the most repeated command is there in verse 5. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. Do you know that? That's the most repeated command all the way through the Bible. Do not be afraid. And you can kind of see why he might say that. Uh, there's lots of reasons to be afraid, aren't there? This would have been terrifying if you'd seen this person with bright white clothes and face like lightning. Except that doesn't seem to be what's scaring them. Look again uh, at verse 5. But the angel says to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. So it might be they're a bit scared by, by the angel of the Lord. I imagine that they were. But actually the reason that's given, the reason that they're afraid, the reason that they're anxious, is that they're looking for Jesus. And they've got to the tomb, and actually they're afraid that Jesus isn't there. They're afraid that he's been taken. Now in that light, the angel has some good news and some bad news. Now whenever you ask people, they always ask for the bad news first, don't you? Well, he gives them the bad news, doesn't he? He's not there. They're right, he's not in the tomb. But there's some good news, isn't there? Because he's not there, because he's risen. He tells them to see for themselves in the empty tomb. Then they're to go and tell Jesus' disciples and to let them know that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. Jesus has risen from the dead. And this is amazing news for them, isn't it? They, uh, in a mixture of fear and joy, go to tell the disciples what they've seen and what they've heard. And then it gets even more amazing, doesn't it? On the way back, they meet the risen Lord Jesus himself. Uh, do you see that there in uh, in verse uh, seven, uh, sorry, verse eight. Uh, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And he came up, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Jesus himself meets them. They recognise him and worship him. We touched a little bit on that this morning, didn't we? They bow to him as master, if you like. The word there, I didn't mention it this morning, I said it was like a dog and his master, uh, that word worship in, in here. It's really like the word to kiss or to lick as a dog. So it's almost as though what your dog would do to you as it sort of runs up. Uh, it's related to that word. So it's almost as though they're at the feet of their master. They're almost kissing his feet. Uh, down there lowering themselves uh, to him. And Jesus, interestingly, he gives them the same command that the angel did, didn't he? There in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, I don't know about you. Have you ever been disappointed? Uh, I uh, went to see the Kinks a few years ago. It would be about 15 years ago now. Now, the Kinks were an amazing 60s group. You know, had some amazing hits. Wonderful guitar, everything. I was really looking forward to it. It was just me and my dad. That didn't happen very often. So I was really gearing myself up. And then we got there, the guy sat on a the guitar for about 10 minutes, played a couple of the songs, 
that we knew. And then the rest of the evening was taken up by this new album called Phobia, which they just released. And it was a concept album where you know, they involved a lot of screaming and there was sort of swinging across the stages. And people were literally leaving. Um, the, it was the Leeds City Varieties, literally walking out of the door. And I was very disappointed because I wanted to go see the Kinks, but actually it turned out to be a very disappointing experience. Now, these women, as they meet the risen Christ, they might have been a little bit disappointed. Because actually, if you think about it, the angel has just said, right, here's the message. Jesus has risen. Go and tell the disciples. And what does Jesus say to them when they meet Jesus? He said, ah, I've risen. Go and tell the disciples. It's exactly the same message. Now, that tells us two important things. One is that this age that we live in, the age that we've got here, is going to be characterised by verbal proclamation. Long words for speaking. If you think about it, why did the angel appear at all? If they were going to bump into Jesus on the way back, why did the angel have to appear to them to tell them that he was risen? Why couldn't Jesus just meet them first? But why did the women have to pass on the message at all? Jesus was going to meet his disciples. Jesus was going to appear to them. Why couldn't Jesus just tell them directly? Why did they have to go back and tell them? Well, it sets something in place, doesn't it, here? That we hear the message before we see it. We hear the message before we see it. Actually, this is an age that's characterised by us telling other people. The angel tells them there to tell other people. That's his first thing he tells them, isn't it? Go, well, it's a, do not be afraid, but then go and tell the brothers. Actually, they're, they're to hear about Jesus risen before they see it for themselves. There's that verbal proclamation. But it also teaches us that there's only one message really. So listen to this from Galatians 1, uh, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul speaking. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He's actually saying, look, if somebody is bringing you a different message, then let them go to hell. It's really, really strong language that he's using. Because really, there's only one message, the gospel. And that's a bit of a challenge, actually, as a, as a minister, as a preacher, especially if you do a lot of evangelistic sermons. Because basically, you've got the same message every talk. Now, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's only so many ways that you can explain the gospel. Uh, it's wonderful that there is only one, one message, but it's quite a challenge then to explain it. I'm so glad that God gave us the whole Bible uh, to explain the gospel, because it gives us a wonderful variety but really, every time, it's the same message, isn't it? Jesus died for your sins, rose again, is now in heaven, is coming to judge. Put your trust in Jesus. That's, that, that's basically the message that we're, we're saying all the time. If Jesus came to preach this evening, and we said, right, okay, give us a message, that would be the message he was proclaiming. The gospel. Because that is what we believe, the one message. The wonderful good news. Now, Jesus would do it a million times better than any of us could, wouldn't he? Uh, and there's, But there'd be nothing new to say, in a way. It would be the same message. Lots of different ways of putting it, but the same message. So Jesus gives them a good news to pass on because he's risen. He gives them this wonderful verbal proclamation to go and tell. What do you expect to follow this? Jesus has now risen. We've seen Jesus. Do you expect miraculous signs? Powerful displays of Jesus' power. Is he going to show them just what he can do now that he's risen? Well, in many ways, the repercussions are going to come as a bit of a surprise. 
some repercussions. The first one is opposition. Have a look at verses 11 to 14. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread amongst the Jews to this day. So here we have Jesus' first resurrection appearance. The very next thing that follows is opposition. The women haven't even got to the disciples. That seems to be the implication there in verse 11. While they were going. So it's almost as they're going to tell the disciples. Before they even get there, the opposition kicks in. The soldiers go and tell the chief priests what have happened. And even now, as they tell them what they've seen, what they've witnessed, they don't bow the knee to King Jesus. Instead, they organise to destroy the early church with lies and bribes. Just as they bribed Judas to betray Jesus, so they bribed the soldiers to lie about Jesus. Because actually, them lying here could be quite a risky business. It would have taken probably quite a lot of money to bribe these men. They were Roman soldiers. They were supposed to guard the tomb. (coughs) Apparently, if you were caught sleeping on the job, if you admitted to uh, sleeping on the job while guarding someone or something... That was a capital offence. You could have your head uh, chopped off. You yourself could be crucified for doing that. But what they're saying here is, well, we'll give you some money. And if it comes to the ears of the governor, we'll we'll take care of it. We'll make sure that you're not going to get in trouble for this. But do you see how the lies have already started before even they've got to the disciples virtually? I imagine it took a while to come up with a plan, but it's all set in motion before they get there. And it shows us here, doesn't it, that the devil doesn't waste any time. He's been dealt the death blow by the cross, hasn't he? He knows his time is short, but he doesn't just mope, does he? He goes off to destroy the church. And just as the lies continue to Matthew's day, that's the report that goes round, so they continue to ours. People often just repeat what they've heard about the resurrection or the crucifixion. Oh, it's all just a myth. You know, oh, there's no evidence that Jesus lived, died or, or rose from the dead. I think conspiracy theorists, I, I, mean, I used to be quite into conspiracies when I was younger, but I think they've run amok if you, you explain to them the, the amount of cover-ups that go on. And people just assume that this is true, that there's no evidence, but often haven't looked into it for themselves, have they? People just believe the lies that have been circulating since Jesus was, was raised from the dead here, since the soldiers went to the chief priests. People believe things about Jesus that are so easily disproven, don't they? I was reading an article in The Guardian that just said it out straight about all the different people that had testified to Jesus within only a few years of his death. And yet people just seem to not be uh, listening to them. They don't be able, seem able to see them. So even right here and to this day, the church faces opposition. The church of the risen Lord faced opposition from day one, just as it had done in Jesus' lifetime. So this is a mark of the age that we live in too. Uh, we face opposition, don't we? We face uh, challenges from people, from uh, opposition, trying to, to dampen the message, trying to stop the gospel getting out. But then the second repercussion we see is mission. Uh, it's actually verses 16 to, to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. The second repercussion of the resurrection is mission. The Great Commission, no less. Now, I might be a bit dense, but it never struck me before just how close these two things are together. I've heard plenty of sermons down the years on the resurrection, and I've heard plenty of sermons down the year on the Great Commission. But I've not really heard any that really put those two together. Yet here they are together in Matthew's Gospel. It's in the context of Jesus rising from the dead that the Great Commission occurs. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, this is presented as the only thing that Jesus says to his disciples. That's all he says. So what is the Great Commission all about there? When we talk about the Great Commission, what we're really meaning is verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The force of the Great Commission there is making disciples. Sometimes you hear that the force of the Great Commission is go. But really the command here is to make disciples. So for example, if I asked someone to go and make me a cup of tea, uh, the force of the command there isn't generally go, as in I want you out of the room, I want you to leave and and go away. Actually the force of it is make me a cup of tea. Um, So it's that sort of language, as you go. Now it is to go, isn't it? Because it says to all nations, and here they are all in one place. So there is an imperative to go, But it's the making disciples that's the the mission that they're left with, not just leaving and going somewhere else. And the command to make disciples is a command here to every believer. Isn't it? We, We believe that. It's not just to the apostles. So just think to yourself this evening, what are you doing to make disciples in your life? If that's the big command, if that's the the implication of the resurrection, what are you actually doing to make disciples? in your life. See, the Great Commission is not so much fulfilled by missionaries, but by regular believers, isn't it? I looked this up, apparently there are about 140,000 missionaries in the world as we traditionally understand them. But they're not doing the work of the Great Commission all by themselves, are they? Our statements, uh, our doctrinal distinctive, sorry, uh, as a church state that we believe that every Christian is a missionary. All Christians are missionaries, not just the apostles, And Hudson Taylor took that on, didn't he? Um, But I think, actually, we have gone a bit the other way now. We tend to think of uh, full-time missionaries, the called, as being who it's really speaking to. We think, oh, it's for them. But actually, it's for us. Perhaps this is the revolution we need to understand in our time, that actually everybody is included in the Great Commission, every Christian. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we should make disciples. That's mission and ministry. That's what we mean by making disciples, pushing everyone on to maturity. That's the massive imperative of the resurrection. Really, it's saying that Jesus rose from the dead, so we must rouse from our slumber and tell people about Jesus. Not just to the lost, but to each other. That's why it's mission and ministry. He says that, doesn't he? Teaching them all the things that I have taught you. Well, that's not achieved in a 10-minute chat, is it? 
you have with someone. It's not even a cheap by a follow-up course over seven weeks or something. Actually, that process is a day-to-day thing. It's a week-by-week thing. Teaching each other more of Christ. That never stops, does it? We keep doing that. We keep making disciples as we teach one another. But before they do that, before they are to work, do you notice here they're to worship? See there in verse uh, 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus has given them a big command, isn't he, to do. But actually, before they even start, they worship. Before we are workers in the harvest field, we need to be worshippers on the mountain here. Now again, when it says worship, I, I don't think we're to imagine that a band comes out. It's talking about their posture, their attitude, their words. They adore Christ. And if they're going to take the, the gospel to the mountains of India, to the jungles of Africa, the apostles really got around. Worship is going to be their fuel. It is because they know who they are in Christ. It's because they know who the risen Christ is. And they worship him that they're able to do this. But there is more to it than that. There's always one word that we miss out often in the uh, Great Commission. If you go back to verse uh, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We get the go bit, we get the make disciples. But what about the therefore bit? Well, it points us back to verse 18, doesn't it? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you want to say, well, wasn't it yours before? Didn't you have all authority before, Jesus? Weren't you already the son of God? But if you remember, as we've looked through, this is speaking back to uh, Daniel chapter 7, isn't it? Um, this is Jesus, the, the son of man, the glorious one. This is Daniel seven fourteen, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That was speaking of the risen Christ ascending to heaven to receive these things. So here Jesus is risen, and now he says these things. Now he says, go, go therefore, because all this authority has been given to me. So Jesus gives hints of it in his life, doesn't he? So he gives, you know, says to the disciples, they're going to be fishers of men. He sends them out on mission trips. But there's nothing quite like this where he tells them to go and make disciples. It's like their life commissioning. Because he has all authority. He can tell them what to do. So if we grasp the significance of the resurrection. If we grasp what it means for Christ to be risen and have all authority. Then we'll see the imperative of mission. If we don't grasp that Christ has risen. And what that means. Then we won't take the message to the ends of the earth. Because we won't have anything to go with. We won't understand what Christ has done. You see, it says here, doesn't it, that some doubted. I don't know if you, that always struck me as being a very strange phrase. You know, here is Jesus, risen Lord, speaking to his disciples. He's saying there's 11 of them, some doubted. Uh, the sort of naughty brain in me goes, I wonder which ones it was. You know, was it, you know, Bartholomew? What about the ones we never hear about? What about the ones that, that don't appear afterwards? But really what it means by doubted there is that they didn't understand the significance of what they were seeing. They didn't understand what the resurrection meant. Because they can see Jesus is risen, but they couldn't understand at that time. It took them a while to get their head round 
what they were seeing, some of them. But what they should have seen was that Christ is the world's one and only true king. Every knee must bow to him because he's been given all authority. Every tongue must confess him because he's the only king. He's there to be obeyed by all peoples of the world. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's what he's saying. Now, that's a scary task, isn't it? But it's the task that God has left us on earth to do. What have you done in the last week towards that goal of making disciples? How have you been making disciples? If you haven't, then what have you been doing? If you haven't, then what are you going to do next week to obey the risen Christ who has all authority? It can seem hard, can't it? It's a hard work making disciples. And it certainly was for the disciples. They lost their lives doing it, most of them. But there's an incredible encouragement here, down in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's left us a hard job, but Jesus is with us until the end of the age. Now again, this is a clue that this isn't just to the disciples. If it's to the end of the age, then this includes us too. It reminds us again of the opening chapters of Matthew. Do you remember those aged, those ages that we saw between Abraham and David, David and the exile, exile and Christ? And we live right at the very end. And it's saying Jesus is right with us till the very end of the age. He's still with us by his spirit. He's still with us by his word, by his presence amongst us as we gather together in his name. You see, we are left here to carry on the work. But really, it's him carrying on the work through uh, through us, by his spirit. So we're starting to stray a little bit now into another long word, pneumatology. But this is all connected together, isn't it? And like pieces of an engine, it's there to drive us to something, isn't it? And here, what it's to drive us to is mission. So theology is never an end in itself. It drives us to action, to arms, to adoration. So as we look at the resurrection, as we think about Jesus risen, as we sing these hymns, it should drive us to make more followers of the risen Christ. So let's pray now that God would bless us as we strive to take the message out, as we strive uh, to keep this command because Christ has risen and gives us the command to do. So let's pray.